There is a podcast that lies between the imagination of two simple-minded earthlings. Travel with these two longtime friends, Jimbo and 80s E, as they attempt to explore the fifth dimension. Follow along with them as they take the key and unlock the door to the vast space between shadow and substance. This podcast is one of trivia, of insight, and of sounds and ideas from one of the greatest television shows ever produced. You are embarking on a timeless journey. There is your signpost up ahead. You are entering the tragedy of cinema's Twilight Zone. A hotel suite that in this instance serves as a den of crime. The aftermath of a rather minor event to be noted on a police blotter, an insurance claim, perhaps a three-inch box on page 12 of the evening paper. Small addenda to be added to the list of the loot. A camera. A most unimposing addition to the flotsam and jetsam that it came with. Hardly worth mentioning, really, because cameras are cameras. Some expensive, some purchasable at five-and-dime stores. But this camera... This one's unusual, because in just a moment, we'll watch it inject itself into the destinies of three people. It happens to be a fact that the pictures that it takes can only be developed in the Twilight Zone. All right, guys, welcome back to the Tragedy of Cinema, the Twilight Zone series. I'm your host, Jimbo, and joined once again by my co-host. ADZ, coming to you from the fifth dimension once again. Once again, the fifth dimension. Um, we're just trudging along right here through season two. Now we're already up to episode ten. Uh, this will be a most unusual camera. But Eric, before we start, I do have a question for you. Okay, Eric, did you ever have a Polaroid camera growing up? I did. Um, that's one of my earliest memories of any kind of camera. Yeah, I remember uh, posing for Christmas pictures, and yeah, my I think it was my mom's, and she got it as a graduation gift if i'm not mistaken how about you oh yeah absolutely i had one you know you would click it and the best part was sitting there shaking it trying to get it to you know yeah. develop in your hand you know what i mean it was it was just cool at the time now they even have like the little mini ones you could get to like put on your keychain and stuff you know what i mean really yeah huh now let me ask you this your polaroid camera my my mom's i don't know it might have been worth some money now i don't know if maybe not but Hers was old enough that you had to actually buy a strip of flash bulbs and stick it on top of the Polaroid camera. I, re- I remember. It didn't have a, yeah, it didn't have a built-in flash bulb. You had to buy like a strip. I remember those because yeah. uh, they were like a, a brick, kind of like a like a Tetris brick yep. you would put in there. But the bulbs yep. would burn out once you use so many times, you'd have to replace yep. that. But mine had the built-in flash, so we, that tells a little bit of difference between how old I am compared to how old your mom is, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, uh, that was a crazy invention, though, back in... I guess it would have been like the seventies, maybe when the, when those when she got hers. Anyway, I don't know when they actually came out, but yeah, that's a that's a cool little interesting note, right? And before we get too far in here, let me apologize for the last couple of weeks' uh, episodes. Uh, it sounded like I was actually stuck in the fifth dimension in like a time vortex <laughs> or a closet. Um, I've been dealing with the ear infection. I go back to the doctor today, so. Uh, hopefully we have everything worked out. The kinks worked out. We did some test runs. Um, but yeah, last week's was almost, uh, as unbearable as Eric thought that the episode was to listen to. So, <laughs> so here we yeah, go. Let's, happens. uh, back on the wagon. Let's get on this, Eric. This is, uh, season two, episode 10, a most unusual camera. All right. A most unusual camera. This is the twilight zone season number two. This would be episode number 10. And it was directed by John Rich. Just a little aside note about John Rich. He was born on July 6th, 1925 in Rockway Beach, Queens, New York City. He was the director and producer. He's pretty pretty famous. I believe this is the only episode he uh, directed. But he was the director and producer known for All in the Family, a big show, in 1971, The Dick Van Dyke Show, 1961, and a little lesser known one to me, um, On the Rocks, 1975. So big time director here, uh, some pretty big television shows, iconic television shows in American television in the 60s and 70s, so John Rich. Uh, This episode was written by uh, Rod Serling, and 
Its original air date was on December the 16th, 1960. And just by way of a small trivia uh, question for you, Jimbo, on this day in history, this would this day being not the day that we're recording, but December the 16th, what uh, major American event in 1773 on December the 16th happened? And I'll give you a little hint. Uh, it's best identified, I guess, by the phrase, no taxation without representation. Can you go back in your mind to your history class? Well, absolutely. And I'm sure it is the Boston you got Tea it? Party, right? That is correct. That is correct. Ding, <laughs> you're, asking ding, ding, ding. A, you're asking a history buff here these simple yeah. questions. All right. Well, I couldn't stump you on that one. So the Boston Tea Party, December 16th, 1773, for this day in history, also the the date of the uh, Twilight Zone episode in 1960. All right. Uh, so the per- total production cost for this particular episode was $39,607.47. And when we adjust that for inflation in today's dollars, again, kind of a running theme. It's about a tenfold increase. We're looking at $398,766.94 in today's dollars. So that'd be about a 906% increase. And as we said, stated before a couple of times, you probably couldn't even do 10 minutes of a television show now for a 400 grand. Uh, Jimbo, I don't know if you had any extras on... You do. You're shaking your head. You I have do. extras on the total production cost, so take it away. Absolutely. Um, and I have a question for you as soon as I get to the end of this. Okay. Um, the uh, producer and secretary, there was a line for uh, $1,775. Uh, the story and secretary... Here we here we go. Again, we see secretaries used in multiple lines of this budget. Uh, $2,630. The director got twelve fifty, which seems to be the normal of each of these episodes... Uh, the cast, $4,784.45. Unit manager and secretary, again, $100. Production fee, $825. Agents and commission, $2,500. Legal and accounting, $250. Below the line charges for MGM, $24,496.31. And below the line charges others was $996.71, which gave the total production cost, as Eric stated, as $39,000. $607.47. So, Eric, I have a question. Do you think that some of this below-the-line charges or other charges that were um, given in these budgets for each episode had... Was there anything in there for Rod Serling cigarettes? Or do you think it was just his own personal thing? Was it a tax write-off for it? You know I mean? Did he get to put that into the uh, budget? I don't know. Uh, was he? I think he was smoking. Was he smoking in this episode? I think he was, actually, yeah. You know what I noticed, though? He had a really cool watch on. I was trying to... <laughs> I, I, I picked up on it. It had, it had like a triangular-looking dial. It was really cool-looking. I, I don't know what kind it was or anything, but I, I don't know why I noticed that. But, but I think it's really neat. it's probably cool because about this episode, they are crooks, so maybe he just decided to put a little extra on him. You know what I mean? Like, hey, they picked maybe. up. Maybe, but as to the cigarettes, I don't know. Like, can I say that, something? That. As far as unintelligent as these crooks seem to be they are very intelligent when it comes to uh the stuff that they steal you know what i mean because they're like well these two vases from the ming dynasty and he's like these aren't from the ming dynasty you know and he shatters them you know what i mean so obviously he knows yeah. a little bit about it yeah he probably they probably were very uh familiar with the goods and whether they were good or not uh, or whether they were valuable i guess or not right. yeah so let me go ahead and jump into the cast real quick um, as Eric stated, we did have Fred Clark, uh, who played Chester Diedrich. Uh, you may know him from Sunset Boulevard from 1950, where he played Sheldrake. But he was also in The Curse of the Mummy's Tomb, where he star- played Alexander King. He had Jean Carson, who was Paula Diedrich. Uh, she played in The Party in 1968. And Eric, you probably know her from The Andy Griffith Show, where she Absolutely. played Daphne and Jalene Naomi uh, Connors in four episodes. Uh, let-, let me just... Sorry, let me just interject. If you want to do yourself a favor, <laughs> go and watch the two episodes. I think one of them is called like Fun Girls when yeah. Andy and Barney meet them for the first time. And uh, yeah, Gene Carson is part of a duo team of uh, yeah, they're going on dates and stuff. That is a hilarious episode. Uh, it's iconic for the Andy Griffith uh, show, but yeah, that, that's cool. a different Gene podcast, Carson. Eric. That's a different podcast. Yeah, we'll, we'll do that what, one down. What the did line you somewhere. think of her? What did you think of her voice? <laughs> oh, it's like so unique i don't know that i can 
just off the top of my head, think of anybody who, yeah, as a female, she had a really, really bare, maybe baritone um, type voice. It's almost like yeah, she smoked very... like three packs of cigarettes a day or something. You know, she had that. That. <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess the person that I would most consider her close to would probably be uh, uh, the lady that played in uh, Spaceballs, uh, the the robot. Uh, what's her name? Oh uh, yeah. It's not coming. Joan, to my Con- either, Joan Rivers. Joan Rivers, I think. Oh yeah, Joan um, Rivers. Yeah, but I very think, deep. Voice. I think she could have got a lot more roles with that voice, especially in like cartoons and stuff. I think she would have been really oh, yeah. good in some of that. But I couldn't find anything where she did anything like that. So uh, next yeah. we have Adam Williams, who played Woodward, who reminds me of Eric a lot. <laughs> he was in North by Northwest. But Eric, what famous Twilight Zone was he in? That you have on, seen man. in season one. Come on. Do you know The it? Hitchhiker. The Hitchhiker. Where he was he the played sailor the sailor. The right. Well, I just want to make sure because I, I, you know. <laughs> uh, then you had Marcel Hilari, Hilari uh, where he played Pierre the waiter. Uh, he was in Sabrina in 1954 where he played the professor. Uh, you had Franklin Farnham who was man at the racetrack who was uncredited. He was in Sunset Boulevard where he played The Undertaker, not the WWE, The Undertaker wrestler, but The Undertaker in the the movie. Uh, Art Lewis uh, was the racetrack tout who was uncredited. Uh, He also played a drunk in another episode of The Twilight Zone, but he was also in Hot Stuff in 1979. Uh, You had Tony Reagan, who was the man at the racetrack who was also uncredited. Uh, he was in Quincy Emmy in 1976. He also started several of the Perry Mason episodes. And yes, last but not least, you still have Rod Serling, who is the narrator and the host, who is uncredited for all the Twilight Zones so far, and probably till the end of the season or series. So there you have the cast for a most unusual camera. All right, let me jump right into the plot of this episode. I'll take over from here. Um, A married couple, Chester and Paula, have broken into and robbed a curio shop, hoping to sell the loot for a handsome sum of money. Unfortunately, all of it turns out to be junk or fakes. All that is, save for a mysterious camera. When they try taking a picture, it turns out to be from five minutes into... Excuse me, it turns out to be from... Five minutes into the future. That sentence doesn't sound right. Anyway, soon Paula's brother Woodward joins them, and the three decide to use the camera at a horse track to win it big. So. And they do win it big. They they do in the beginning. Yes, they do. Um, Did you think, I don't know. I kind of have a question. I guess I'll save it for the end. I, I, I tend to jump ahead, but like. Would there be any other good uses? I'll just throw that question out into the out into the nebulous. What else would you use it for? I guess other than gambling and betting. I, I was trying to rack well, my brain, but I'm you sure know, there are some cool things. That's that that was one of my uh, questions at the end. Um, it's a simple story, uh, but yeah. I wish they would have done more with the camera. You know what I mean? Not just to get rich quick. I think they could have done a lot more. Um, can you imagine? Uh, let's say taking a picture and I'll just use this as an example because it hadn't happened yet, but let's say the JFK assassination or something, you know I mean? Took a picture oh, yeah. and, and, and trying yeah. to, I'm not saying because that happened late years later, but I'm just saying something like that. Maybe like the man going to the moon or something, you know, or an explosion or a war or something like that. Adolf Hitler, yes. something like that. They could have intertwined in here, even though this was a simple story and I enjoyed it. I wish they would have done more. So yeah, that's a, that's a good thought. Like if, they could have woven something, some big uh, historical event in there, right? You know, and and took the picture, and then they knew like what catastrophe was going to happen like five minutes later, and they knew about it before. Exactly, yeah. uh, that's cool. And here uh, we have the opening scene, and Rod's uh, monologue is really early in this particular episode. I thought it was cool in the scene where he's standing in front of a mirror, he's smoking a cigarette, like Jimbo <laughs> said earlier, and he's got his cool watch on, like I, I noticed. And in the reflection of the mirror, uh, Chester and Paula are frozen, like, and he's standing and, and delivering his monologue. Um, kind of different in that he's so early, as opposed to, I think, the last episode, he didn't come in until almost seven minutes, or that was, uh, sorry, the episode before the last one. Um, so they're in a $28 hotel room, right? Yep. And they've just completed a heist. And I do believe that, uh, 
the trailer at the end of the last episode said it was a forty dollar a day room or whatever. So I oh, think there's a little so bit there of was an error. I think so. Yeah, a little bit of an error there. Um, so Chester is going through the the hall, and he's uh, like Jimbo mentioned earlier in our episode. He, you know, he picks up two vases. Well, actually, Paula's reading a a newspaper article recounting the robbery of the curio shop and you know they're sort of getting their kicks and jollies because you know they pulled off this heist and they're reading about their own heist in the newspaper and they're you know uh kind of chuckling about it and chester picks up those two aforementioned vases and like vases from the ming dynasty because that's what paula reads out of the article and he's like these are junk and he like throws them down and smashes them and whatever and it, it has, like, this this episode is more, you know, lighthearted. We've talked about it before, like, when the uh, Twilight Zone tries to do comedy a little bit, um, you know, it, it doesn't thrive as well as when they do, you know, science fiction and time travel and all that stuff. It's not as good. And you kind of get that, a little bit of that feeling early on in the episode because it's kind of like... I don't know. It sound the the the, mo, the excuse me, not the monologue. The dialogue kind of sounds like an old gangster movie, like John. Well, that's not really old. Like Johnny Dangerous. Like, hey, come on, what are you doing, guy? Like that kind of dialogue between Paula and Chester. But they're you know they're they're playing it up because they're they're like crooks and stuff. And so, um, uh, where do we go from here, Jimbo? Do you have any trivia as far um, as? Anything that jumps out, or anything that jumps out? Not, not, not yet. Um, I'll have some stuff yeah. here in a little bit. I will say this right here. Um, this did inspire the Goosebumps books. You remember the Goosebumps books, there? I remember the covers. Yes, I don't know this. I've read any of them. They, they inspired the Say Cheese and Die book, as well as the sequel <laughs> okay. Say Cheese and Die Again. So just okay. You know. <laughs> um, yeah. So they're going over uh, initially the camera. Uh, initially Chester thinks it's junk and he's like, you can't even load the film anywhere in here. This thing's, you know, a piece of junk. And he's sort of like, I don't know. He's, he's kind of scolding or he's kind of giving it to Paula. Like, you know, you case this place and they're kind of arguing back and forth, which is what they do. They, they argue back and forth and they're each is blaming the other for why they decided to case this curio shop and there's not a whole lot of valuable stuff. And uh, that's kind of the initial scenes until Chester decides that he tells Paula to go stand over by the window and he's going to take her picture with this most unusual camera. And he's like, look, this thing doesn't even work. It's not even, you know, uh, the picture doesn't come out right away. But when it does, after they've kind of put it down and once the picture comes out chester takes a look at it and it's very unusual because after a minute and taking a double take he's like you have a fur coat on <laughs> yeah but she doesn't rec she doesn't recognize it because let me well, i guess i should back up in in the initial scenes she just goes and stands by the window and she's got a nice dress on and then he takes the picture and he's looking at it and he's staring at it and he's like tell me you know tell me what's different about this and she's finally like oh i don't have a fur coat or whatever and then uh, after that, they go over to this chest that they stole. It has a lock on it. Chester takes his knife out, and uh, he pops the lock off. And lo and behold, inside the the uh, chest, uh, the wooden box or whatever, there's a nice, beautiful fur coat. And Paula takes it out and's like, "Oh, this is mine! This is mine!" And then goes over by the window. And then after about five minutes or so. She, you know, has the full coat on and everything, and she makes the exact same pose that was in the picture, and uh, that that throws Chester for a for a loop. Um, let me look at it and see if I have anything. Oh, I had something as a part. Well, I don't have it in front of me, but I, apparently in the original script, a switchblade knife was uh, supposed to be used in the scene because he uses a knife to break open the the chest or whatever. And so CBS wrote back to Rod in a memo and requested that he change, uh, well, a couple of changes. I'll read the other changes uh, as we come to them. But he requested that uh, they change it from a switchblade knife, which was illegal back in 1962, just a tr regular uh, jackblade knife. And uh, that was one of the uh, requests that CBS made. Uh, 
because it was illegal, I guess, to have a switchblade knife. Jimbo, anything? Uh, no, but uh, this was originally going to be in um, season one. Uh, it was actually right, in, right. Uh, what was it say here? Let me get back right here where I was reading this. Um, Rod Serling completed the first draft of the script by April 23rd, 1959, labeled script number six. So I don't know if that means it was actually going to be number six of the season one. With the intention of filming for his, for the first season. On April 29, 1959, CBS sent Bill Self, Buck Houghton, and Sterling a report asking for a number of changes, which Eric has already alluded to one. Um, and we'll get to the other ones as we come to it. So um, I think it's very interesting that this could have fit right in with season one, and it could have been as early as uh, number episode number six. Yeah, I, I think it was in abeyance or something, is what I read. It, it kind of sat on the shelf for you know a season or until the second season. But I have the other items here that uh, CBS wanted to change. I'll go ahead and throw them in right here. The switchblade knives being illegal weapons. We already talked about that. Uh, their use on a television drama is contrary to CBS policy. Please substitute a jackknife or a fixed blade knife in this scene. Serling also made the appropriate change. Um, the first change that they wanted, let me back up into the paragraph, uh, was to remove the word frog from <laughs> Chester's comments referring to the French waiter. And I didn't know that that was a derogatory term until I looked it up. And so I'll give you a little, uh, maybe a little uh, answer to why are the why are French people called frogs? And the reason why, from this is from GrammarHow.com, the reason why the French are called frogs are possibly due to them eating frog legs as a delicacy. It could relate to the wet, marshy land of the Low Countries. Uh, I can't pronounce that French word. It's called a hamlet outside of Paris. Apparently, it's like a really marshy area. And it may be a reference to the counter-revolutionaries in the French Revolution. I think there were counter-revolutionaries who, if I remember correctly, uh, on their flags and they wore patches on their uniforms, they were... Uh, a depiction of a frog on their patches and on the flags that they use. So that's why French people are called frogs as a derogatory term. Eric, you know? I have a question for you. Do you remember the uh, the Warner Brothers frog, the Hello My Baby, Hello My Darling? Hello? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to remember um, the one guy that, that gets him, remember, and he just stands up on the stage, he wants to be famous, and then he's just like, ribbit, you know, he doesn't do anything. Yeah, just croaks. Was that guy yeah. French? <sighs> Dude, you're really testing my memory today. I, I mean, I, that know. just that just clicked in my head for that, some reason. I remember him. Yeah. I remember him being like the tuxedo and everything. I just didn't remember if it was set in France or not. I can't remember. It might be New York City. Yeah. So I don't, might, I'm not sure. Might have been. I'd have to go back and look. Uh, the third and final thing that the request uh, that CBS made was to please refrain uh, the coronary histrionics, so as to avoid horrifying or frightening the audience in a particular way those among it who might have a heart condition themselves. The coronary scene was replaced with a now oblivious window scene. Right, and so I don't I don't know this, how that would have worked. Yeah, I don't know either, but apparently the, maybe they all had heart attacks and, and they died. After they saw the picture, maybe they had heart attacks and they didn't want to, you know... I don't know, the, the horrifying and frighteningness of having a heart attack. They didn't want to maybe trigger people who had had heart problems in the episode, so they decided to change it to them falling out the window. But um, apparently that was in the original script, and CBS took it uh, requested that Rod take it out, and he obliged them. So um, back to the episode. Nothing really sticks out. Uh, as far as, well, I guess we need to do plug the plot point here. We Once they figure out that this is a, quote-unquote, most unusual camera, at first, um, Chester decides that he's going to, you know, be... Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's going to be an entrepreneur, not an entrepreneur, a philanthropist of sorts, and he's going to give this camera to science and the world, and he's, he's going to make the world a better place. And uh, Paul's like, well, what has the world ever done for us? Or humanity, what has humanity ever done for us? And uh, so, well, I guess I do need a backup before this. Yeah, we're you introduced do. To Wood <laughs> we're introduced to Woodward. Sorry, I'm getting out of order a little well, bit. Well, you, you even got to go back further than that because... The the picture that was taken of um, what's her name uh, Paula, 
uh, it's bothered uh, Chester, dude. He can't sleep. He's sitting up there in the middle of the right. night, you know what I mean? And she's she wakes up and she's like, what are you doing? He's like, I just, you know, she's like, it's going to drive you crazy. She said, here, let me take this camera and I'll prove to you that it was just a fluke. It was just a once of a, and she takes a picture of the door. And she says, see, you know what I mean? And so it develops, ding, it comes up and pulls out and it's a picture of Woodward. Well, she's shocked and he's shocked because Woodward's in jail for some sort of yeah. crime. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And it's not too long after that, the old Woodward walks through the door. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, he was uh, supposed to be in jail for like nine years and uh, he broke out. Woodward comes in and goes, hey guys. And he says, me and my... Me and my buddy broke out, and we snuck out through the laundry. They broke out of jail, and he's standing in the doorway, which leads me to one of my questions and observations. All right, all right. So, if how did how did Wood if they were in a hotel, a twenty eight dollar hotel room, how did Woodward not only know where they were at if he was in jail to show up at the hotel room, but then he knew exactly what room that they were in if he was in jail. So that's kind of a uh, maybe a little bit of a lost plot point there. Exactly. That, uh, didn't really add up with me. They they probably, I don't know, they, they just, like, it didn't make sense how he would just automatically show up there. But let's uh, let's meet our two leading characters. Like, uh, well, they are um, Gene Carson and Fred Clark. I got a little interesting story how they met Rod Serling here. It says, so Fred Clark and Serling met at a restaurant one afternoon. And it was this chance meeting that led to Clark being cast for this episode. Jean Carson never played the lead on a television series. She had no problem playing a supporting role on shows like The Twilight Zone. That doesn't bother me, Carson recalled to a trade column at the time. With my crazy voice, I could never be a leading lady, so why would I kill myself trying? Besides, as second tomato, I have the reward of always being busy. I don't have to sit around for months waiting for the a few big jobs that come up. I know stars who absolutely go crazy and out of their minds with inactivity. I was cast for The Twilight Zone because Rod Serling wanted me to play the lead in one of his scripts, Carson recalled. There was a party near Malibu. I was surprised to learn that he had seen me perform on stage in Mrs. Gibbons' Boys. I told him I was definitely interested in being new and while being new to the West Coast... The producer phoned me almost two years later telling me Rod was fulfilling his promise. And that comes from the Martin Graham's Jr. book, uh, The Twilight Zone, Unlocking a Door to a Television Classic. So that's kind of cool. Again, once again, we see Rod just being a good guy and keeping his word. And so that just, again, shows, uh, as we've seen over a couple of episodes now, as we read um, some background on these episodes, that he, he was a, a man of character and... He promised Gene Carson a role in, in one of the episodes, and he came through for her. I thought that was kind of cool. Yep. Anything <clears throat> Anything else as we jump back in the episode? <laughs> I don't know, but I really like Woodward in this episode. He brings a little bit of comic relief. I think it's fun. Yeah, it's a pretty lighthearted episode for sure. Now, from here, once Woodward is... We're back in the apartment. Woodward... Uh, and the three amigos, I guess if you could call them all three together, they're, they're sitting and they're trying to decide what to do with the camera. Woodward sits down and he decides he's going to watch a horse race on TV. Well, Fred tells him, or sorry, Chester tells him to turn on the TV. Yeah, like, get out of here, go, go watch TV or something, yeah, something like that. And so he goes and he's watching the uh, horse race and that, of course, triggers a, a light bulb in Chester's mind and he comes up with this grand scheme and this great idea that they're going to go to the horse uh, track and they're going to bet on the horses and the way they're going to do it is they're going to take a picture of the scoreboard five minutes before the end of the race or prior to the race even being run and they decide that or he decides and he's or trying to describe this idea to the other two right and that I, they're going to make a lot of money and i believe before he turned on the tv is this where he says i want to give this to the world and all that you know uh yeah. because i was uh watching something else and there's where he says here world you know a gift i have for the world and then he, and then, yeah, and then yeah. woodward's like well what about me he's like yeah 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 you too woodward but then he starts again <laughs> and he's like here world if you once he says "here world" the second time, if you listen closely, there is an echo 
where it'll say here world again, which like uh, it's been missed by the production department uh, on that stage. You can hear the echo kind of like um, Eric probably heard an echo last week or when we've tried to do some of these recordings, <laughs> you know, I'll say something and then Eric hears it again. Um, but if you, I thought that was very cool. Even on the Blu-ray, you can hear it. So I thought that was pretty cool. Oh, really? I didn't, I didn't notice that. that that's a pretty cool little thing that the, yeah, apparently the production people caught that little, or they didn't catch that little echo. That can be frustrating. I know from experience, like <laughs> going through all the audio and trying to get everything to kind of sound at least somewhat presentable. So that's, that's kind of comforting to know that a, a high production, uh, show like the Twilight Zone even missed a few, missed a few things. Right. So. Um, so once we get to the racetrack, right, we'll go ahead and fast forward to the racetrack. They're there. They got the camera set up and well, I have this, uh, this leads me to another trivia point. So before they go to the racetrack, they gather up all the money they have and they have around 200 or $210, right? So here's a little bit of trivia as far as that goes. The horse pays 4760 for a $2 bet. So they have around $200 to bet. When the horse wins, he says 9500 this is Chester says 9500 bucks. It's actually around 400 or $4,760. So it was a little bit of a uh, miscalculation there on the money. So it would have actually been about 4760 as opposed to 9500 bucks if they were betting $200 and it's a $2 bet for the horse to win 4760. So that was uh, one little minor error in the uh, episode. Um, again, we already talked about how Chester and Paula were staying in a hotel suite, but yet somehow Woodward knew where they were, including the room. Um, so this goes on and on. Uh, well, they take a, a few pictures of a few races at the, the racetrack. They win big. I mean, they're loaded down. They come back to the, ho- the hotel suite. And they got gobs and gobs of money, suitcase money. It always bothers me, too. Like, I know this was in the 1960s. I'll just go back to a small minor detail. But, like, when they use fake money, <laughs> you know, stage money, it's like, come on, this is clown-looking money. It looks like Monopoly money when the, when the uh, yeah, the cashier's handing them all the money. But you, anyway. don't, you don't know what kind of money's used in the Twilight Zone, Eric. It could be true. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. <laughs> so they end up back at the hotel room. And they are, you know, soaking it all in. They got champagne or wine bottles popped open. And in comes the hotel waiter. Well, not yet. But you got to remember, uh, Chester's on the phone and he's talking to some car dealership, remember? And he's like, well, no, no, I didn't say I wanted a a black. It's got to be yellow with black interior. You know what I mean? He's like, well, how much will that set me back? He's like, 11,000. He's like, well, no, that's not a problem. He's like, I'm just trying to decide if I want two of them. You know what I mean? Yeah. And yeah. I did the really. I did the inflation inflation on this. Uh, even the two hundred <laughs> yeah. even the two hundred twenty dollars that they had to bet with, it came out to like yeah. two thousand four hundred dollars that they could have bet. So the eleven thousand was equal to like a hundred and two thousand dollars or something to purchase the cars. I had pictures of it, but obviously we are on, over a phone call, so I can't pull them up. But I thought that was very <laughs> interesting, you know. And he's putting it like all in a suitcase. <laughs> Yeah, so and Woodward's just man, they, Woodward's just over there eating chicken legs or something. Yeah, yeah, that was they hauled in the loot and they're, uh, you know, they're they're uh, basking in the glow of their winnings. When I'll come back to the waiter again, he comes in and he says, "Oh, this." He looks at the camera and he picks it up and Woodward goes, "Put that down." And then Chester's like, oh, "I'll just let him look at it." And so the waiter notices. And he happens to be French, by the way. He happens to notice that there's an inscription on the front of the camera. And the inscription reads, uh, pardon my French, if you will, <laughs> de, de la propriétaire, de, de la propriétaire, which translate in English 10 per owner, i.e. 10 uh, photographs per owner. This is actually a grammatical error, for it actually means 10 to the female owner. Nouns are gender-specific in France. La always implies female. Masculine is considered inclusive for anyone. Therefore, it should have read de au propriétaire, A-U, instead of la propriétaire. So that's just a little interesting side note. But anyway, all of that to say that they they suddenly realize that there are only 10 pictures in this camera. And once the 10 pictures are up, 
uh, I guess that's it. They don't know because there's no way to load any film. And then they start trying to recount back in their mind, like, oh, man, how many pictures? Oh, we took uh, two pictures before, then six pictures at the racetrack or whatever. And they start counting them up, and they realize that they only have two pictures left. And then they begin to argue about how they're going to dispense of the last two pictures. And then a struggle ensues, like all three of them have their hands on the camera. And one, I think Paula says, no, we need to save it for a rainy day. And Chester says, no, we need to go back to the racetrack and, and take another picture and win some more money. And the, and uh, I forget what Woodward says, probably something ridiculous. And they're struggling back and forth with it. And then they accidentally, you know, hit the button again while they're struggling to take the camera away. And it takes a picture of Paula a frightened picture of Paula. So, of course, uh, they all, again, make their best guess of, you know, why is she afraid? Like Chester says, well, she's afraid because, you know, her brother is going to try to hurt her husband, and then they start arguing again, and uh, which, again, I don't know, would the heart attack scene probably fit better in this? I, I can kind of see how it might have because when they see the picture, they get frightened and they have a heart attack. And Paul has already said palpitations, palpitations throughout the, you know, throughout the episode. But the whole window of them just like, I guess the fight, Chester and Woodward fighting, you know, Chester pulls out his knife and then they fall out the window. That kind of, I can kind of see the, but whole, the last two. The whole, uh, the whole, let's go ahead and just pull out a knife and start fighting just got to me you know what i mean why did we go straight from you've seen the picture what happens i mean they, it could have been her acting like that because they dropped a, a champagne glass or something but they went straight to yeah. oh you're trying to kill me you know what i mean so i mean it's yeah. it's i think it's a look at greed and how money turns you on you yeah know, will turn sure. on each other you know what i mean so yeah so um the waiter and I, by the way, what's this guy's name? I've already forgotten the guy that plays the way. He did a really good job. Uh, Marcel Hilaire. Yeah, that, I mean, he really plays it up, the swarmy waiter here, because he comes back in after the two fall out the window, and he's got, like, a laundry bag, and he's like, I'm here to take the laundry. But I, know? I think it's also interesting. I'm here to clean you out. It's also interesting <laughs> that, uh, uh, what's her name, Paula? That she she doesn't mourn for very long, you know. What I mean, she she's like she's distraught, and she's just like, oh well, yeah. you know, starts yeah. gathering money and everything. Yeah, that was a great comedic part. Like she got over it really, yeah, fast. real quick, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's like oh well, life must go on. These things happen, yeah. and she's filing her money in, and then the, the waiter comes in and he, uh, he robs her, and yeah, she's like, I'm going to call the police. He's like. Go ahead. You know, you're the yeah. one that's robbed all these places. Yeah. And uh, so another picture in, in in the passage of time gets taken. No, she she takes it. Does she take she it? She goes okay. over to the window and takes a picture of him out that fell oh, the for courier. posterity. Right. right. And then I don't know if there's another picture or not. No, it's the same one. It doesn't come out Is yet. The, Pierre, it comes out when Pierre's talking to her. That's right. You got it. Uh, the, when the picture finally comes out, Pierre takes it and he notices or he tells her that there's more than two bodies down there. Now, I got a question. This is the question that, yeah. that bothers me for this episode. Okay. He looks at the picture and he says there's more than two bodies. Dude, if there's three bodies out there or four bodies out there, you know how many bodies are out there. Why? Why do you, why do you go just, to the window? <laughs> right. Well, not only that, but, but if there's more than two bodies, you've obviously looked at the picture. You know what I mean? Yeah. And – you would have known the difference between three and four. That's the part that got me on this episode. You know what I mean? Yeah, and I I can kind of see how they led Paula to fall out the window because she tripped on the that was funny that too <laughs> to the floor. But well, because she ran over there to Pierre, see, he's like, whoa, whoa, whoa! There's more than two people in this picture. He doesn't say yeah, there's yeah. four people. He doesn't say there's three people. He says there's more than two. And she runs, yeah. rushes over there, and she trips over that cord or rug or whatever falls out the mm-hmm. window. But you know, then you've got the great Pierre. Uh, you know, he's like, you know, you, you basically you should know. And he's like, look at this. He's like, one, two, three, four, four. And, he and then drops the camera. And then you hear a yeah. scream. Oh, you know what I mean? So my question yeah. to you is, Eric, did, I guess he would have had to have fell out the window because the camera said that there were four people uh, on the thing. So I can't really say that the heart attack thing played in i was going to ask you do you think he had a heart attack but now that i'm thinking it through myself the camera said there was four people outside so he had to have fallen out the window so he couldn't have had the heart attack because he's not going to scream if he's having a heart attack you know what i mean 
Yeah, I I don't know. That kind of does make sense to me. Like if he had a heart attack and and fell out, I don't I don't know. You know, it doesn't give us that information. That he just that the camera sort of pans to the floor where right. the camera lands. The camera is right. And they don't really show him falling out while like he sh- like they showed the other three falling out the window. Uh, the waiter Pierre, whatever he's he's not shown on camera, and I like that man. Yeah. It, it leaves it up to to uh, the the viewer discretion. I like that because they don't give you the answer. Yeah. It's the Twilight Zone. Yeah, yep, exactly. Uh, any questions or observations? Um, um, no, I already talked about that. I talked about the three people and the photo, then the four people, and then how mm-hmm. they. Um, but here's I'm going to read this real quick. Um, in May 9th of 1960, Blanche Gaines, Serling's former agent, submitted a short story titled The Latest Thing in Cameras by James Blumgarden. Serling rejected the story proposal on the grounds that it duplicated, in essence, this script, which had been written for almost a year before, even though the episode had not gone before the cameras yet, and uh, a revised script uh, from the year before had been completed days before receiving Gaines's submission. In the early draft, Serling had a brief scene in the script with the antique store owner and his wife complaining to a detective about the robbery. The revision, however, did not feature this scene. Serling had deleted it because the uh, cost involved in creating another set and hiring at least three more actors for uh, additional roles would not have been practical. CBS, during production of the second season, was pressuring both Serling and Hound about keeping the cost down, so Serling obliged for the sake of the network. Quote, a series can be sustained with top quality writing and acting, but suffers when filmed from economics, Sterling commented. It's rare that a show can shoot in uh, more than three days, and it is this too brief shooting schedule that is reflected in the lack of consistency in film shows. This is particularly true in anthologies. When the Twilight Zone came up with a rock on occasion, this was occasionally the net result of sloppy writing, but more often it reflected a lack of time to polish the show properly. So yeah. uh, he even admitted that some of the episodes were rocks. <laughs> you know I mean? Where they weren't as good as the other ones. Yeah, I think a lot of it comes back again to the fact that he was frustrated with the network and not giving him the money. Because I guess in this episode, um, there was supposed to be another scene added to the beginning, maybe. Like a, like a clerk in... Maybe was it that one? I might be getting mixed up with another episode, but they wanted to put a, an extra scene in, but it would have cost too much money with hiring actors and sets right. and stuff like that. So um, here's a question that I had. I, I've got three bullet points for questions and observations, and I'll throw them out and see what you think. It seems to me if they went over and over at the racetrack that they might attract some attention, no? Right. Like, that was one of the things, the people sitting behind him, I was, like, I, waiting for them, one of them to be, like, a cop or the, the you know, the episode to take a turn. Like, they would have got caught for gambling. Well, I was betting. even watching one of the guys where uh, Chester goes running out to get the money. You know what I mean? He's like, oh, wow, you know, this guy's just basically shoving me out of the way. You know what I mean? I was right. waiting for them to knock the camera off. You know what I mean? Because it was sitting on the ledge. Oh, yeah. And I thought yeah. it would be funny if it knocked off, you know, somebody else picked it up. That would have been a great way to end it, too. You know what I mean? But I, I thought that was what I was waiting for. <laughs> Yeah, I'm just like, all right, you're in there, you're winning all this money, you know, winning every single race, uh, you know, and and they got this weird looking camera that they wouldn't uh, attract a little bit of attention to themselves. Crime doesn't pay. I put in this lighthearted tale, the criminals criminals weren't morally good, but they were likable. Yeah. Uh, You know, I I really like that. uh, Well, crime crime does pay, but... It does, if, but if you get but caught in the end, but if you get caught, it doesn't pay. Or you right. fall out a window. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the, I just put the Twilight Zone karma has a way of giving criminals what they deserve and being a little more gracious to people like Templeton in our previous episode. Um, and then I had this question for you, Jimbo. We've kind of already thrown this out earlier, but if you had the most unusual camera, what would you take a picture of? And you said big historical events. Uh, major catastrophes that might be avoided but, uh, but, if you had But if you have the camera, you're not going to know that it's a historical event until right. after it happens. Right. You know what I mean? Right. But also, so, it's it's I mean, almost like the camera takes a picture when it wants to. I don't think it was necessarily them taking the picture. You know what I mean? Because if you look at it, if you look at it, he's like, there's no buttons, there's nowhere to load film and all that. So I don't think that they ever actually, like, even when she went out to the window, I don't know if she actually ever took the picture. I think the camera just took the picture on its own. 
I'll do you one further. If you look closely, someone notated this. I think it was an IMD comment, IMDB, excuse me, comment. Made a notation that in the struggle, when there are three of them are struggling for the camera, and then it takes the picture, no one's finger is actually on the button. If you, there is a button on the side, right. but no one's finger is on the button when you zoom in. And I was like, hmm, yeah. So that you bring up a good point. Maybe the picture has a mind of its own, and it takes a picture when it wants to. Yep. Um. Anything else? I've got a surprise for you at the end, but go ahead if you got anything else. Well, no, I'll wait uh, for my closing comments to propose what I <laughs> what I have. Okay, well, I have a, I have closing comments too, but um, I guess it'll be kind of a tradition going forward for these lighthearted episodes like Mr. Beavis. I actually wrote another poem about this <laughs> oh, this no. episode, so <laughs> we can do it now or just give you want to give well, our let's, ratings. Let's I, give let's give our our final thoughts and ratings, and okay. then we'll close with you giving your uh, ADZ poem. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not good, but you know we can't break tradition. <laughs> so this episode it is lighthearted, like we've mentioned before. It's more comedic, and most of the time the Twilight Zone doesn't do well in the comedy uh, vein. But this one, out of the three I think that we've seen so far, when I compare it to the Mighty Casey, it's better than that one, and just slightly better than Mr. Beavis. Mr. Beavis kind of holds a, a, a place in my heart because it was such a, a kind-hearted, good story. Uh, but it wasn't good. Like, it wasn't <laughs> funny. But this one is definitely, again, the characters are, uh, they're, they're good characters. It was well acted, as far as I'm concerned. But it, I wouldn't say it was a great episode. I'd probably, again, it's one of those middle-of-the-road ones for me. Uh, I think the Twilight Zone does a lot better when they stick to what they're good at and i'd probably put it like at a six if i had to rate it imdb has it at what jimbo what'd you say i think it was a seven the last time I seven what's your thoughts where do you rate it where's it rank well like i said uh this is a simple story um i would have loved to have seen it something more iconic than just going to the racetrack i, I wouldn't have cared if they went to the racetrack let's say for for a little bit and, and got this huge amount of monies where like now they can like you know, be uh, owners of NASA or something. You know what I mean? Just something crazy. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And maybe have, you know, the man on the moon or whatever. But what I do like about this episode at the ending, it's an open-ended story. Um, the, the, the the French waiter does say it's 10 uh, pictures per owner. My question to you, for one, is there was three owners. So you had... Chester, you had Woodward, uh, and you had Paula. So that's that should have been 30 pictures. They would have been guaranteed. Okay? Uh, second, my second thing is, with the open-ended story, I like that because it, it, it gives me a flashback to um, uh, an episode earlier in Season 2. I think it was Episode 2. The uh, the Genie in a Bottle episode. If you remember at the end yeah. of that, yeah. the, the basically he throws, they break the bottle or whatever, they throw it in the, the trash outside, and it comes back together for the next owner. Um, I like how this one, the camera drops to the floor, so the maid or whoever that comes in that cleans this is going to pick up the yeah. camera, and it's going to keep on going and going and going. And I like that. So for me, I enjoyed the episode. It was well acted. It was hilarious at times. Woodward stole the show. Um, Paula with her voice. Uh, Chester with his over-the-top, you know, wants to save the world. Um, I'd probably give it a probably a 7.5. I think it was very well done, um, and I like the open-ended. And, and when you do... The Twilight Zone, uh, some of their more famous episodes are really dramatic. Um, they have these big, huge twists. Um, there's not a lot of comedy in them. And I think that this is a fun episode where you can sit back and watch. You can laugh. Um, and it, yeah. I, I just think Pierre's pretty funny at the end when he's like, oh, no, there's four. You know, and he falls out yeah. the window. Well, we allegedly we know he falls out the window, but we don't know what happened to him or if he pushed, tripped, whatever. So, yeah, I'm definitely going to have to give it a 7.5. So, Eric... Let's hear this poem. That you, what was the last poem that you did? Do you remember, Mr. Beavis? Oh, was that the last Which one? Was another comedic? Yeah, another comedic. Was that episode. your? Was that your, is you, this your second one then that you've ever done? Yeah, this is only the second one. This is not going to be anywhere. I, I took a lot more time with the Mr. Beavis one, but uh, yeah, just to to bring up, you need a 
you, you brought up an interesting point, and then I'll read the poem. The, the, we call them like the palate cleansers because you can't have all these heavy, dark, twisting episode, you know, big twist episodes. You got to have something in the middle to kind of break it up. And uh, this was a lighthearted episode. I thought it was fine. It, it wasn't great, but uh, it was fine. So I'll just read this uh, poem here as we close out our episode. It goes like this Three's a company, but four is a crowd. Be careful when greedy waiters are around. A most unusual camera brought about great fortune until each tried to steal the other one's portion. A gift for humanity. Now that was a classic. Earned a stern rebuttal. Is there a leak in your attic? <laughs> Two fell out the window while one screamed aloud. Two more would follow. Three's company, but four is a crowd. <laughs> so there you go. <laughs> well done. Well done. Uh Maybe Eric, once we're done with these series, he will publish a book with all of his Twilight Zone poems. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so uh, there you have it. That is uh, a most unusual camera. Uh, next week, uh, Christmas time is right around the corner. Actually, just a couple of couple of days away now. Um, we will be talking about one of Eric's favorites, uh, A Night of the Meek, uh, starring the great yeah. Art Carney from Honeymooners fame. Um, yeah. So... Um, if you like what you heard, please uh, leave us a review. Uh, follow us on the Tragedy of Cinema uh, podcast page on Facebook. We have a lot of fun on there. Um, if you want to email us, thetragedyofcinema at gmail.com. Um, but, Eric, I think that's about all I got. Do you have anything else? Did you uh, Yeah. Did you want to plug the, the Christmas episode? Absolutely. Coming also soon? coming out probably uh, next week, um, right Probably whenever uh, Tim Mullins gets it done, um, which he actually texted me while we were uh, recording this. I said, dude, I'm in the middle of uh, recording a Twilight Zone episode. He's like, oh, sorry, tell everybody I said hi. So everybody, Tim Mullins says hi from the uh, Hillbilly Horror House. Um, if you haven't checked out that his podcast, uh, do it. I do play Danny. I'm a voice actor. Um, it's a lot of fun in there, too. So uh, season two, we're having a, a lot of fun with that. Um, so go give him a check out and give him a review, too. So. Uh, but yes, we will be having our third annual uh, It's a Wonderful Podcast Life with some of our fellow uh, podcasters and friends. Um, so hopefully uh, everyone will have a safe and Merry Christmas and get a little extra podcasting listening time and some time off work. So with that being said, I think this episode is coming to a close and that's a wrap. And cut. Object known as a camera. Vintage uncertain, origin unknown. But for the greedy, the avaricious, the fleet of foot, who can run a four-minute mile so long as they're chasing a fast buck, it makes believe that it's in a lie. But it isn't at all. It's a beckoning come-on for a quick walk around the block in the Twilight Zone. Thank you.